we have this this amazing brain to think about this the power to imagine things and create things and uh, i mean these uh, indomitable spirit is something that i get excited about Friends, and welcome to the 44th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can find Pine Copper Lime on Patreon, Instagram, Facebook, and you can sign up for our monthly newsletter with print news from around the world at pinecopperline.com. Printmaking forever. Shun the non-believers. My guest this week is Koichi Yamamoto. Many of you may know him from his beautiful kites printed with otherworldly faces. As I got to know Koichi more during our interview, I realized that he's a global citizen who has been taken around the world in his pursuit of art and new experiences. He was born in Osaka, Japan, educated in Wyoming in the United States, traveled and studied printmaking in Eastern Europe just a year after the fall of the Berlin Wall, designed tablecloths in Denmark, went to graduate school in Edmund at the University of Alberta, and so much more, before landing at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, where he currently teaches Italian printmaking. He talks about it all with a beautiful philosophy of life and art. You are in for a treat, print friends. A quick note on the sound quality. Skype was acting up a bit, so the first 15 minutes of our interview has a really little quiet, light buzz. But don't worry, it drops out after that. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and get ready to move mountains with Koichi Yamamoto. Hi, Koichi. How's it going? Very good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How is quarantine treating you? That's been a good opportunity to sort of reevaluate, you know, what is the motivation for artwork. And in a way, it has been very nice, uninterrupted time that I can focus on working small plate. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I know that um, a lot of your work can be quite large scale are you finding the the quarantine times getting you a little more focused you said on a small plate smaller plate but i think i'm going to be working with a large number of the plate mm -hmm. so each print's going to be relatively small but they're going to uh, uh sort of combine together become a larger piece of work i think that's kind of my vision ah, right now. beautiful well i'd love to talk about that maybe a little bit more later to sort of hear what yeah the quarantine project is for you but before we get too far into things would you mind just letting people know who you are where you are and what you do my name is Koichi Yamamoto I uh, I teach printmaking at the University of Tennessee Knoxville I've been teaching here in Tennessee for about 12 years now and uh, we have been working together uh, with it. Mostly I work uh, teaching an Italia relief section. But uh, as a team, as a uh, group with uh, uh, Professor Bob Reliance and Al uh, Professor Althea Market Price, three of us, we work together to run the program together. 
beautiful. Yeah. So that's where you are now. But where did you grow up? And tell me a little bit about the role of art in that time of your life. Um, I was born in, and raised in Osaka, Japan. And then I grew up in the 70s and 80s, I guess. And I wanted to learn English language. And so I moved to uh, Sheridan, Wyoming, northern part of Wyoming, a small town. And that's why I went to high school there. Uh, I moved there in 1983. I was 15 years old. And then I was going to be there just for a year or two. But I ended up staying there for longer than I anticipated. And then I uh, ended up finishing up in high school and start uh, uh, studying geology at the local community college in Sheridan, Wyoming. And after that, 1988, I moved to Portland, Oregon. And that's what I started to the art school. And uh, I w- first I was interested in making uh, ceramics. And then I was working with a uh, clay and, and uh, sculpture pieces and, and um, sort of land art, I guess, placing the clay and unfired clays in certain locations and watching how things would deteriorate. Um, so these are kind of work I did uh, in the Portland and the Oregon coast. And uh, then I met uh, Professor uh, Mona Burks. Uh, she's a printmaker. She's a tamarind uh, educated printmaker. And I was working for her, uh, sponging her stone. And that's how I learned lithography. Hmm. And uh, so that was my sort of first encounter with the printmaking. Pacific Northwest, uh, like Seattle, Portland area, has a wonderful community of the artists. Uh, they sort of help each other. I didn't know anything about printmaking at the time. But the meeting with the uh, uh, Mona Burks and then also in the Portland the Art Museum, they have this uh, wonderful collection uh, of the Golden Gilkey, uh, Gilkey uh, graphic collection, which is the uh, Golden Gilkey was a person. He was a, um, a professor at the Pacific Northwest College of Art in Portland, Oregon, part of the Portland Art Museum. But uh, during the World War II, he was uh, assigned by um, uh, U.S. military to do a uh, search of this. Uh, the artwork was discarded by uh, uh, Germany oh, um, wow. during the World War II time. Yeah, so he has a uh, – so for that reason, in Portland Art Museum in Oregon, they have a very large collection of the uh, uh, German expressionist prints. And uh, uh, also, it's not just the uh, uh, German work, but also a lot of work coming from Eastern Europe, if coming from Yugoslavia, Poland, Ukraine, and, and Belarus, and, and, and Romania, and places like that. And so I got to see those graphic work coming from uh, Eastern Europe, and that was uh, my uh, uh, inspiration. That's exactly why I was interested and at the time. And... 1989, the building wall fell down, and I was in Stone College at the time. But and I found a way to go to Poland. And in 1992, I think I moved to uh, Warsaw there, and then uh, started to find a place to print. But I couldn't really uh, find. The first I found this was a really obscure print shop underneath this military uh, institution. Um, and then there's a strange kind of sign that art club is within English language. The art club, mm. what the hell is this thing? Go, they go down this basement and then I meet with this, this Polish soldiers. They're uh, basically pickled with the alcohol. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're major drunk soldiers. They're too dangerous to handle guns and 
military equipment so they're staying in the basement and they're making the artwork and and then so thus i end up with working with those guys for a while it was an interesting environment i didn't speak polish but so our communication was basically drinking alcohol and singing a song and <laughs> somehow we communicated but um that was a you know and uh, 1992 was right after about two years three years after the building all wall fell down so a lot of uncertainty in in the atmosphere in poland at the time so I'm just so confused a little bit mm. about where exactly it was in Poland. So was it was it like a military-sponsored institution, or had these soldiers just kind of found their way to the art club? No, 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 no. This was a, a legit military institution. It was a, <laughs> as a part of the um, military institution that they they create. I think it's a propaganda work is probably the right word uh-huh. because it's not just a fine art. They had the radio broadcasting, they have a filmmaking, uh, and they had a sculpture even too. There's a lot of this a whole um, sort of like a academy of this art in the military back setting. It's a, kind of strange. And then, and then of course, the, the artwork or the, uh, the the production comes out from the institutions usually are associated with the you know, military propaganda work you know yeah. the, the uh, i guess the sponsored art institution i guess so so i get to kind of see that remnants of that work but the, the crazy part was that it was a uh early 90s there was a war was going on in yugoslavia and so mm-hmm. a lot of people refugees are kind of you know, running away from uh, war and there's some are the, the very well-known artists professors coming from academy in, uh, in, um, in Croatia, and they'll come out here. They've lost whole entire family. They were devastated situation. But the Polish government opened up the, the housing for them or the art studio for them. Mm-hmm. So I ended up in the arts, artist union in the Krakow in Poland, southern okay. part of the Poland. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I couldn't go to academy um, because in order to become an a, a official academy student, I had to pay and I didn't have money for it. But... I could go to this uh, art artist union studio, and I pay a small amount of money and fee to use uh, has uh, access to uh, print studio. I was doing lithography at the time, and then that's where I met a lot of artists coming from uh, Yugoslavia and Romania and so on. And then listening to their stories, it's pretty devastating. I mean, yeah. this is a pre-internet time, um, you know, early '90s, and so it's the uh, communication information was rather limited and. Uh, I mean, I didn't speak Polish at the time, so uh, all this information I hear in the radio is uh, coming from rare, broken BBC, you know, uh, broadcasting coming from. So that's what I was the information source, but early 90s. But, so, yeah, that was the uh, the time I was uh, producing work. Uh, but the, fortunately, I got to uh, uh, do marketing through this gallery in Portland, and then, so I, I got to sustain my living as an artist, producing mm-hmm. work in Krakow. So I'll come, I'm come to Oregon, uh, into back to the United States once a year. So I'll have an exhibit, and then I'll sell some work, and I transfer money back to Poland. And then, mm-hmm. and exchange rates uh, was, you know, the dollar was strong, and, and Zloty, uh, the, the Polish currency, was very, very weak at the time. And then so uh, the value I was making, I was making a whole lot of money in the United States, but the, I was, it was enough amount to have somewhat of a comfortable living in Poland, somewhat of a comfortable living. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it was kind of way to, my way to sort of uh, a buyer 
time, I guess. As an artist, and I thought about what is the most important things. The well, the of course having a studio and the materials and so on. But the most essential, uh, the part is the time. That is a that's the most expensive part, I think. And then, so that's another reason I stayed in Poland to produce artwork. And then, um, you know, I, I wasn't really thinking ahead or anything. I was just, at the time I just needed a place to produce work. And then, and then, um, you know, early nineties, that was the perfect time for me to be in Eastern Europe. I mean, of course this, this was a challenging, uh, place. And, and uh, in fact, it, it was a bit of the, the, uh, so the racism was started care, um, picking up because, uh, during, during the socialist time that, uh, they have to sort of help each other. And mm-hmm. um, but the, when the socialism ended, that uh, they were started raising their own flag and the mm-hmm. sort of nationalism started picking up. The problem is that that life is not getting any better. So it's, you know, easy target as if myself looks boring, and then so that I become a target. And so I get uh, I got a couple of incidents. I was lynched by skinheads once, and oh I had pepper sprayed once, and so. On. So uh, it's funny that, you know, you kind of hear about this sort of uh, racism so on that I didn't really experience a whole lot in the United States. I'm sure there is, too, but but I really experienced more that uh, vivid, uh, like physical uh, threat of the racism in Eastern Europe. It was mm-hmm. like the first time in my life. And, uh, and, and uh, so it was a bit of scary. I ended up in the, once I, I was in Slovakia, I ended up in the hospital. So that's another reason I just left there. But um, so that's early '90s in Eastern Europe, um, but that um, definitely that was really fascinated. It was a graphic work coming from it, and also during the '80s they uh, had this interesting history of uh, changing course of the the Polish history by uh, without spilling too much blood, mm-hmm. meaning that um, the solidarity movement in the '80s, the uh, like Valencia led, and they uh, had a sort of secret gathering together and um, but if they were to be uh, too obvious about their meeting and they're being marked by uh, military police and then being recorded so they have to be really subtle about their communication so so they made a, this a posters looked like a like a theater but, huh. but actually the, the events was made for anti-socialist uh, gathering for instance wow. so they're really creative yeah very crafty about uh gathering of people you know we have to understand this is a pre-internet time so the very stellar and also the uh the signal of of the content was well communicating among the people who were uh unhappy with the socialist government at the time yeah and and then so those people united so 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 it is a very very interesting uh example of how visual communication can change that course of the human behavior and it can change that the history of a nation in this case. Yeah. And so that's another fascinating fascination about the uh, live in Poland, graphic uh, histories and so on. So with the posters, did you think that, would there be any chance that somebody would show up actually expecting a theater? production do you think there was any risk of that and find an anti-socialist meeting instead or was it coded like <laughs> just right yeah um, I, i'm sure you know I, i'm 
of course, I don't I don't know everything about mm-hmm. the circumstances, and that's the sort of history, and 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 those those kind of legendary history has been colored up and and, and emphasized or or exaggerated at some level. So I could imagine some people would show up and expecting some particular uh, opera or, or theater, and then wait a minute, that's not that's not what we're doing here. Yeah, it might have happened. I don't know. Uh, I could have been some comical version of that but i think i think that at the time my understanding of the solidarity movement uh, in the 80s in poland that is the people already upset they already had some clear um, dissatisfaction with socialist government already Mm -hmm. and then and then that's why the 99 percent of the uh, polish people are sort of registered as a catholic because as long as they're a member of the church the uh, government can really uh, touch them. And uh, even the socialist government, they're afraid of the, uh, picking a fight with the uh, Catholic Church. Right. So so the, that's why the church sort of, uh, church organization was sort of a haven for the anti-communist, anti-socialist uh, gathering, I think. So yeah, I could imagine some of the, uh, the content has association with the uh, uh, Christianity content, but I'm sure loaded with some metaphors. And yeah. then, you know, and then <laughs> Yeah, they know exactly they're talking about. Uh, so I think there there's kind of fascinating history about that. Yeah. So how many years total were you in Poland then? I was I was there uh, three years in Poland and one year one year in Slovakia. Okay. In Bratislava. Yeah, and Bratislava was the um, uh, because a lot of graphic work coming from uh, Czechoslovakia at the time it was one country. Um, uh, were a little different from Polish graphic, and then uh, the, the what happened was this what you call the Bohemian culture, I guess. There's a southern part of the uh, Poland to the Austrian between that. The area of the culture they have a lot of uh, sort of mountaineer mountain culture, I guess. You know, I mean, the, like a, like a, you you find those Chilolians and and Switzerland, and they kind of share the similar culture. There's a mountaineer, the, the Gurara culture, they call it themselves. And then, and then they are very industrial folk, and then, uh, therefore they have a very different um, sort of color of the. For instance, Czech Republic was a very, very uh, advanced and, 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 for instance, industrial. After the industrial revolution, the, the the Soviet wants to have a control over the Czech Republic, but they are very strong. So the Slovakia kind of uh, maintained that uh, they had a little more of the voice than. Poland, I think. So the graphic work came out from Slovakia was a little more aggressive and then, and then uh, almost funny uh, mm-hmm. in the in level. There's a humor in there that I loved it most. So uh, so that's kind of end up with in, in this in the Bratislava and uh, Slovakia. It was a time that it was this uh, Slovakia was a separating. They they had a relatively peaceful separation between Czech uh, Czech Republic and Slovakia. And uh, um, so it was very interesting to see this. Day, even the currency that they're using the same currency, the Corona, but that the Slovakia side has a stacker on it. So there's hmm. a somebody manual in the bank putting a stacker <laughs> on each current of the money to make sure it separate. Kind of wild concept, but that's some typical of the socialist yeah. kind of anecdote. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, I. I studied uh, in Slovakia. That's why I learned to do copper engraving. Mm-hmm. And um, engraving is a medium that there's not many people 
do this anymore. It's a it's a slow, it's a pain in the butt. It requires very specific patience, and uh, it's definitely not for everybody. But there, I was really fascinated with that because the 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 fact I don't really have to use any acid. I can use any. Uh, I can make anywhere, and and then so that the the mobility that was uh, I was fascinated with the copper engraving. Also the mark making too as well. So so it's more classical, and then I was excited about that challenge of a traditional uh, mark making by engraving. So uh, so I learned from the copper engraver. His name is Dushan Kalai. Uh, he does the illustration for children's book, and then uh, illustrator. And as I learned uh, in this studio in Slovakia for one year, and, uh, and got to do some engraving and then lithographies and more like illustration i think rather than printmaking and then later on i moved back to poland i went to academy and then uh, poznan poznan poland i went to academy there for one year i mean i mean these are the the, the, the time that i mean i have no idea what's going to happen next year because of yeah. uh, finance and all that things and, and it was uh, extremely uncertain but the, somehow i just walked through this thin ice and survived <laughs> through creating making artwork and just looking back and just thinking about oh my god i went through this scary scary <laughs> journey but yeah. um, um, but somehow I made it through, and uh, uh, I had a I had a sponsor in Oregon, Oregon Coast, and then uh, so the we had a contract together, and then he would buy my artwork, uh, like a twenty prints that, and and then so he will sponsor me uh, the amount of money that I asked for it. So so he was cu- uh, quite as generous to do this agreement, and very very supportive on that way. So. Mm-hmm. So uh, with these kind of people's help, and I was capable of making these kind of things happen in, mm-hmm. in a place like the Eastern Europe. And and with that favorable exchange rate is just, that makes such a huge difference. I know so many artists this day who are living in places um, like in, in Thailand, one of the things the artists say is make dollars, spend bot, and yep. you can live as an artist. Yeah, what do you call it? Out, out, outsourcing, but the... I mean, self outsourcing. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm making myself art source. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Going to the place was a cheat. <laughs> but you know, Eastern Europe is not same anymore. Of course, I'm speaking about 20, 30 years ago, so things mm-hmm. are you know different. And then, so uh, yeah, just Poland, Slovakia, and then I did a lot of printmaking back there and did some illustration. And then uh, I married uh, with a uh, Danish person. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I, I was living in Denmark for one year and uh, working as a, a designer for a tablecloth company. It's called Georg Jensen, uh-huh. Georgi Jensen, I guess. That's uh-huh. It's a pretty well-known uh, tablecloth and uh, cartons. And uh, I didn't know anything about textile design, but I just made a pattern and then they liked it. Mm. And then, so I got into that. Um, to the business and then I worked for them for a while did some design for uh, tablecloths and so on and uh, it was you know unique experience but there's a funny the reason I'm telling that is that the time I was learned how to make a pattern with a mirror and that's exactly what I'm doing right now it's, it's yeah. funny how the 20 years later experience sort of pops up and like the, the work I do today has been sort of planted you know 20 years ago yeah. What What do you mean? Use the design with the mirror, or make the design with the mirror? 
making a pattern for like a tablecloth, for instance, it has to be the pattern image has to be repeatable. So, so they have a section. They uh, they now they have this fancy uh, software, but the old days what they had was a, a L-shaped mirror, basically. So you know, try to imagine you have a piece of paper, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have a mirror right next to it, and then right above it too. So the L-shape, this L-shaped mirror. Yeah. And then so anything you draw is gonna be uh, repeated and create a pattern. Can you imagine that? Yeah, yeah, I can. I can picture it for sure. You can picture it, right? Mm-hmm. Almost like a snowflake or something. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's just like snowflake. Yeah. Yeah, and the same concept, and just using a mirror and making patterns. And that's kind of how they did it in the old days. And then I got to use their tool to make those uh, patterns. And uh, and then it's a funny like that I'm been working with the uh, symmetry image making, and then now I'm kind of doing that thing. So I learned that in textile design. You know? Yeah. Funny thing is how how the life that is, you know. Why I'm doing, why we are doing something or focus on doing things that we don't even know why we're doing that. But later on in the life just sort of makes sense. Like, wow, because I did this, that's why it's sort of connected together. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Like sometimes we try to make sense of nonsense. But but, <laughs> but sometimes the, uh, anything we do in our life that, that we will, it is part of becoming our part of part of our, ourselves and then, you know, become a useful tools, I think. Well, I think that's really good for people to hear particularly right now when I think people are finding themselves in challenging situations where maybe they're doing things that they didn't think that they would Mm -hmm. ever need to do. And it's, again, you know, as you kind of, if you're on this little, this little boat on the sea of life, you really truly never know what skills whether literal skills like creating the patterning with the mirror or even just emotional skills you pick up are going to come and serve you later on and and you'll be happy you have them in your tool bag definitely yeah (laughs) survival toolkit (laughs) exactly exactly wow okay so you were you were in denmark and you're doing the um the design there, were you still getting to work on your yeah. prints? Were you still doing engravings during all of this as well? What I was doing, uh, I was uh, I was working at, I had a press at home. So I was working with a Sintra, actually. Uh, this is, I, I went to my graduate program in Canada, in Edmonton. And that was another uh, sort of period in my life that, um, I mean, I was looking for the graduate program, but of course I didn't have any money, but mm. you know, they come up with the funding. So I, that's how I ended up in Edmonton. But, uh, it turned out to be really, really great program, and uh, uh, it's uh, uh, in a way I had a both world, uh, my networking with the Eastern Europe, and also the, my heritage of, as a Japanese, and it was just perfect match uh, mm. because the institution, University of Alberta, they have a great close networking with the Japan as well as Poland. So. Uh, I studied Polish. I never thought I would use Polish outside of Poland, but no, I was wrong. I was <laughs> use, I was meeting a lot of Polish people in Edmonton, oh, so that was that yeah. was great. Yeah, never know, never know. So yeah, that uh, mm-hmm. living in Edmonton. That was my uh, graduate program degree, and then I finished up and lived in Denmark for a while. And then looking for the academic job, and then I finally got one in Utah State, mm-hmm. and I moved to state of state of Utah in year two thousand, I think. Yeah, year two thousand. That's right. And then moved there with 
my wife at the time with my son, so three of us, we moved to uh, Utah. And then, so that was interesting because I loved it, uh, great outdoor and then going skiing. And, and so it was a perfect environment for me just to you know, be able to do this, the, my kind of pers- hobby as well as uh, artwork too. So that was kind of interesting living in Utah. And then I spent a lot of time in the southern Utah and, and then northern Arizona area. Oh, do a lot of there. drawings yeah yeah and then uh, particularly i because during the daytime it's so hot so i started doing hiking in the nighttime actually and mm-hmm. then once the moon's up it's quite a remarkable to um, see the world in the color full color range and during the daytime versus and dark and then you know under the moonlight everything is in different filter coloration it's a it's a fast beautiful world anyway uh, so that my experience in Southern Utah uh, still come come back with my work today, and then when I think about it, you know, the those kind of landscape formats mm. I created monochromatic work has a, a lot to do with the Southern Utah, Northern Arizona landscape. Yeah, because one mm. of the things I wanted to ask you about is that you really have two really distinctive sides of your work, and they're both absolutely iconic really aesthetically distinctive and it's these large monotypes that are just so moody and gestural and powerful in this kind of monumental way and then of course you're super super detailed uh engravings and other intaglio works so we're touching on it a little bit but how do you would you say you think you came to develop these kind of two sides with very different feels that you do also incorporate together as well into single pieces? That's a great question. I've been thinking a lot about that. Mm-hmm. And then I, I think about this static object is seemingly static, but it really never have been. And everything's so dynamic, meaning that like a, like a geological future of the Southern Utah, very raw earth surface being exposed. And uh, so the evidence is more clear than uh, like a, the trees and forest that covers up. We can't really see it, but a place like in, this, in like a high desert, the uh, the er- erosion is very very clear. What's going on? So the process, uh, the, the earth has never been quiet place, mm-hmm. and so constantly moving and dynamic. And then we're you know sort of lucky enough to be able to survive on this very very limited space i guess and uh, extremely vulnerable right (laughs) to think about what's going on today but this this with a giving and vulnerable condition though i mean we have this this amazing brain to think about this the power to imagine things and create things and uh, i mean these you know the uh, indomitable spirit is something that i uh get excited about about life in general i think you know, I mean, do you remember when you were in the science class and you're, you know, kid, your, you know, uh, science teacher tell you there's uh, so many stars out there. There's more stars than yeah. there was the sand on the beach or something, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then and then just like just sitting in the classroom thinking about like, oh my god, this is so I'm so small, right? <laughs> but here here's a small small tiny brain that. Yeah, we all have, and then but the, this brain can imagine and think, and then and then create and then communicate. I mean, I think that's pretty significant. I already, I think. You know? yeah. So it's it's not something to underestimate on that. But yes, definitely that 
understanding a scale and also this a, a, a seemingly non-dynamic uh, or static object but has a dynamic energy is there something that I constantly think about mm-hmm. even making the artwork uh, or landscape that large monotype you mentioned about that I try to establish sort of landscape it's almost like a liquid i guess in order to understand earth's geology just easier to think that everything is is, is a fluid right. and, and, and rock you know mountain seems static yes it is it hasn't moved for a while but of course this is based on a human-centric uh, perspective but the the you know from the geological term i guess it, everything is in constant motion nothing is it's not moving everything's moving yeah, so I, that's that's the kind of the world I think about it, and then um, so the another aspect of my work of being very very uh, tedious and a small detail mm-hmm. is basically those sed- sediment of the time I think, and then um, those are quiet little small motion, but one happens uh, number of the time and it started creating its more dynamic power to it. That's why I'm attracted to this small work that uh, requires a lot of intensity and, and to it. But also the, the large monotype is a little more dynamic and spontaneous, which is a very, very different attitude uh, of mark making. It kind of frees me up too, actually. It kind of yeah. feels nice to make the large piece of art. I can imagine. Yeah, it's sort of like a, a yin to the yang almost in that focus. Yeah, it's almost... It, this is a, this is a fascinating thing about the pleasure and torture, right? And then <laughs> right. So here I'm myself, and then I locked myself in this studio working on this nine by twelve copper plate, putting all my conscious energy into this. It's like, is this a pleasure or a torture? I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah, but fascinating. But then you know, end of the day, that gives me somewhat of a satisfaction. So I guess it is a pleasure after all. But yeah. yeah. And that's the kind of creature of the human mind. It is. And I think it goes back to a little bit what we talked about before about how in these weird quarantine days, how you need to find that balance between work and pleasure. And it's it's you have to have the work like you have to make yourself work in order to have the pleasure of not working. That's right. <laughs> and yeah, that's yeah, right. Which yeah. is exactly kind of what, what you're talking about, like with that just, you know, taking on something so painstaking and time consuming and then having it you know the release of the finished product and being sort of satisfied with something is is that you know is that spring back of the of the rubber band that you're pulling or whatever sort of metaphor one wanted to use for it building up the energy i guess the 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 rubber band metaphor right which is the basically building up this potential energy and so in terms of the actual imagery that you use in your intaglio works you've got these almost seemingly endless variety of these really distinctive faces or creatures i'm not sure what you think of them as but they're very expressive Uh and unique and like a portrait where do those come from and kind of what what are they to you well, they're mixture things, and I collect those uh, sort of iconic uh, things that are sort of ordinary, but that's, it's extraordinary at the same time. And then, uh, so I, like, for instance, the image resource. Uh, 
a lot of buildings in Japan, architecture, uh, old architecture in Japan, and the, on the rooftop, they usually have those uh, uh, ceramic tile with a face on it. Oh. Yeah, kind of like a gargoyle, basically, okay. to keep the evil spirits away, that kind of thing. And uh, uh, also, so some of the building, the ceramic tiles has an association with the fish, because uh, in case of fire, the fish can bring the water, and then so that it's like a kind of like a mental sprinkler, I guess. And mm-hmm. having this fish on top of the building, so that ho- hopefully this place is not gonna uh, catch on fire yeah. or so. And then these icons, and uh, I found in Japan, or I uh, or another place, I found those ceramic figurines. Uh, find in place like uh, in Ecuador in South America, and the Quechua culture, for instance, they will if their family member pass away, especially when a woman has a miscarriage or so, they will uh, the baby will never be born, but they will have this. Uh, they will make this some ceramic figurine, and they will keep it in the house. They won't, it won't have a name or anything, but they're just sort of member of the family, just never being born, but mm-hmm. uh, we, we won't forget about it. So it uh, has a little bit of kind of uh, spiritual sort of reliance, I guess, in those kind of objects. Kind of not necessarily worship, but makes it feel good, makes it feel secure, I guess, be, feel kind of protected or something. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then these, these are kind of that. Uh, faces that I found this really fascinating, and then also the even this uh, industrial psychology, like the automobile we buy, or the building we live, and and the tools we use, they all have a faces. If you notice right. it, if yeah. you look for it, you find it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and uh, like a driving in a family van looks a little more family van versus if you're driving a sports car, it looks a little meaner look to it. You know, <laughs> so they have this uh, attitude. It's not they have a face, and then we interpret it as the face because we're human, and then that's kind of how we judge things, and then, and then how we. Uh, I mean, it, 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 I think this is. I'm speaking a bit of a market industry, but the, I think it's nice to have the face so we can relate to it. That's kind of basic human need. Maybe mm-hmm. that's what I, I try to bring that sort of eyes, and then and then yes, if even it's not eyes, but if there is a dot, a two dot, and then we read as a. I do, yes. yeah. It's I heard um, Paul Wunderlich, the you know great late great German lithographer, once answer a question about you know why are you so interested in the human body? Why is it always in all your work? And he said, uh-huh. Oh, I'm not particularly interested in the human body. It's just the thing that I can distort uh-huh. the most that people will still see as something. Uh-huh. And I think there might be a bit of uh-huh. that too in what you're saying about the faces is that because, you know, we're so programmed yeah. to see human figures, to see faces, to see human or human-esque, or at least something with two forward-facing eyes looking back at us, right. you can play with it and yeah. really, really push it. And people will still see it as an emotional uh-huh. thing, even if it's abstracted to the yeah. point of almost just you know, oblivion. It's a, uh, a lot of uh, religious symbols of uh, quite often they use, I mean, particularly in the Christianity, you know, often you find that things. Often, but yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, having that uh, security and power and also the, uh, the, uh, the sense of trust. And I, I think there's a lot of things that you find that and that sort of balanced face, maybe, I guess. Mm-hmm. When I think about it, like, I just thought about Wendy's Burger <laughs> logo, <laughs> you know, 
because of Wendy's burger, because it's a Wendy. She's there, right? Yeah. And then she's kind of symmetry. She's is she has a face. She has a freckle. She has a red hair. And uh, I mean, these are the important elements right, in, in, in the way it makes it. Uh, even the Kentucky uh, Colonel has totally. a face too. You know, when I think about it. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> oh, that's the scary faces. Yeah. <laughs> We love having something looking back at us and it gives us a warmth, I think. And so, right. you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a nameless chicken murderer. I'm the Colonel, <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah. it's, uh, it yeah. makes people feel so differently about, about what they're interfacing with when they have that. Right. Yeah. The, the glass, glasses makes the chicken taste better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so friendly now. <laughs> when you're speaking of, of the symmetry, actually, in, in Wendy, it reminded me that I wanted to ask you a bit about your particular technique to create them because they are perfect. Okay. You know, they have that perfect kind of symmetry to them. Um, could you speak to that okay. a little bit? Because I think it's a, unusual what you do. Okay. This is very, very uh, straightforward. It's nothing really tricky about it. <laughs> Intaglio printing, Intaglio printing generally takes for a lot of ink. And uh, relief printing or lithography, printing from flat surface to flat surface, the amount of ink transfer is limited. But Intaglio ink is different. Intaglio plate has a three-dimensional depth into it. So the amount of ink transferred to the plate, uh, to the print, to the, uh, the paper surface is a lot more greater than lithography or relief printing. And you can tell really intaglio print, like even the uh, uh, currency that you can touch the field, the, the ink raising the surface, right? So there's a physical uh, transfer. It's not just a, a image transfer. It's like a physical ink movement. Mm-hmm. So I'm, what I'm doing is that the, I use the, I make the plate is the exactly half of the whole entire thing. So try to imagine if I was going to have a face and I would just do the right side of the face only. And then the center line is going to be at left side of the plate. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so I'll print uh, the half of the face. When I'm printing, I'm folding a paper. And then, and after I print it, and then unfold the paper, and then and then fold the reverse, which means printed the side face, uh, the the uh, side become inside of the the paper. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so and then go to the press again. So uh, what happened is image you would transfer once from the plate to paper, and paper to paper by folding a paper, and by unfolding it. And makes the uh, perfect mirror image. Doesn't make sense. It's like kind of. Uh, I can show you in a video. That probably makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I mean, I I I have a little bit of foreknowledge about how you actually did it, so I feel like I'm I'm like, yeah, yeah. it makes sense to me. But uh, we can definitely okay. like this put a link a... in the show notes to a video yeah. of you doing it because I think it's one of those things that when it gets described, right. it's inherently more complicated than than if you just see it being done. <laughs> <know>. Yeah. <laughs> Do it like, like, oh, duh. Yeah. Yeah. Unfold the reverse folding. So that's kind of how I did it. And then uh, it works great. And I tried with different kind of papers, and then that's kind of way to um, create it. It was interesting. I'm going to have a little history about this method I developed. Was uh, I was an artist in residency at the Anderson Ranch. 
once oh, yeah, and then yeah. um, Snow Mask Colorado, beautiful place. And then I was uh, working as a, uh, a printmaker, but they have this wonderful ceramic studio and then I got to use their, their wheel. So I spent more time working in the clay and then sitting on the wheel making a pots and cups and so on and then you know watching this the rotation of uh, of this uh, the clay and uh, looking from above and i thought about like well if i could rotate the plate uh, not horizontally but vertically and then so that was kind of my idea of the transfer reflection print sort of came out idea of the two sort of three-dimensional rotation and a vertical vertical rotation of the plate image yeah. That was kind of idea to the, the fold the paper to make this the symmetry image. And now, you know, you've been we've talked about kind of the the face that you've been making and how you get them there with that that folded yep. paper technique. And now people have been seeing them maybe up in the sky recently. You are yeah. turning they they've left <laughs> the studio. They've gone like off paper as they say and you're creating kites. I'd love to hear you talk about how you came to do that and the process of it. Yeah, this is this is, has been uh, quite the uh, sort of passion of my idea. You know, I've been kind of, re I ask myself, like, why do I do, why do I make a kite and so on and so on. And, uh, and I was looking at my drawing and then think about the fluidity of the uh, line form. Sort of sometimes I kind of create this uh, drawing that series of lines almost looks like a school of fish and creating a large form. And then and I think about these are uh, devices to describe a form as well as it's a, a sort of kind of fluid motion, aerodynamic or hydrodynamic, anything that uh, sort of flows like a, like a water or flows mm -hmm. like an air. I think these are the type of the things I was drawing. And uh, when I was in, in the graduate program in Canada, I, a lot of my work has a lot to do with the landscape of, of a, a Scandinavian German bunkers, for instance, and then mm. clouds and waters and then, and then those natural elements. I, I was having a more fun uh, carving out these kind of elements rather than bunkers, concrete structure itself. But, um, so so these drawings are has a lot to do with the fluid movement and then making the kite was like a sort of perfect idea of the actually uh, to understand the aerodynamic with a very minimum amount of, amount of gear mm. and then in the beginning the, uh, i was making a paper airplane actually and then so that's kind of how i started designing things and then later on uh, I tried to do more sophisticated design, and then instead of uh, uh, sewing a lot, and did more. Uh, the type of the kite I was making was a non-structure kite, which means the uh, uh, air will inflate by itself and create shape uh, with a pressure. From, it's kind of like a, a, a windsock, I guess. Yeah. And try to imagine that. So I will sew a bunch of this uh, this section. And then put them together, and then let the air goes in, and then will fly by itself. So, so that was kind of type of the idea of the kite I was doing with a, a lot of not with a paper, it was mostly with ripstock nylons and mm. and, and ropes and string. So, so that was the kind of initial idea. But after I studying more about kite, and then I sort of kind of run into this hexagon kite. It's called Kokaku kite, come from Japan. And uh, and this is an incredible kite. I saw a different type of the kites and designed my own. But the, this simple hexagon kite is just so stable, 
so predictable and uh, and easy to make and it doesn't require a whole lot of material and if the most importantly easy to travel with it i can just roll up and then pack and then go and then so yeah. i thought it was like this is a perfect design for the kite and so i worked together with a uh, 40 different artists i invited uh, 40 different artists to make kite with me so i ask uh, give them a uh, uh, tyvek material and then so they will print or draw or uh, paint or what uh, anything you can do they can um uh, so they will ship to me and i'll sew them together uh put the carbon fiber rods behind it and then and then make a kite and then we we're gonna fly these kites in puerto rico for the salsa graphics yeah and uh, uh that was supposed to happen last week but yeah. I, unfortunately uh it was a current that didn't happen but but this so the irony of this is that i made a kite and i shipped the kite and the day after i shipped the kite and they announced the cancellation for the conference and then so now they have my kites they have uh <laughs> it's in the puerto rico right now so it's like yeah they're they're getting to live a little bit of the life that we all hoped that we'd be living right now yeah. or last week at least yeah the exactly. kites get to be yeah. there yeah, yeah. Kite, kite is there. And I, I think that what I love about the kite making, the, well, of course, there's a physics challenge into it. But the but if, if once I understand that uh, the balance of the physics, it's, it becomes very easy. And then it's a, it's a, yes, definitely putting a work outside uh, a studio or gallery and just being flying in the air. And also uh, uh, when I fly them, fly them together with a bunch of number of kites they start to interact with each other and become very uh animated and again i was kind of talking about dynamic and and uh, uh static and then the static piece of paper with the tyvek plastic uh, become a sort of living things in the air and definitely this is an exciting kind of moment to see the artwork in a uh, sort of natural setting i guess yeah um, most recently i went to wyoming I was in a place called Big Home Mountain, and there's a snowfield up there, about 10,000 feet, uh, so about sea level. It's uh, very flat, and then it's um, got a great wind there, so I flew the kite there. It's a lot of work, especially putting a, a planting a kite in a, in a high altitude like that, and that was a challenge for my lung, definitely, but <laughs> it was a good experience. So when you're, when you're in the process of taking kites and just your your art and taking it you know out of that gallery setting and into the world and into the wild do you get a lot of interaction mm -hmm. from civilians do people come and and let you know that what they think or do you like how is the how is the public reception yes uh i, I love it and especially i think i think definitely kids mm -hmm. i think they they they're brave they're, they're curious like they want to come check it out and then, and then they take photograph, and then you know they uh, quite often have interaction question, ask, ask questions like, "What is this?" Like, oh, and then you know, I, I think whatever they get out of it, they will take a photograph and they probably put it up in their Instagram, like, "Hey, look, mom, dad, what mm -hmm. I saw today." You know, I mean, but the, but these kind of within these story that there's something that they will remember like wow i saw this is there's a strange guy flying a bunch of kite in the middle of nowhere a, a, a totally unexpected place snowfield in, in northern wyoming yeah. or 
or desert <laughs> somewhere and you know it's a it's sort of uh when i think about it like robert smithson or some of those artists that had the land art you know they'll place it in a location that it's a really really hard to get to right. in a way so like, kite flying is kind of like becoming like that too uh, and again the it's, it's so easy to travel with these kites and it's lightweight and then so I can, you know, go to different location and fly the kite as long as there's a wind there. So that's kind of I've been trying to uh, sort of justify and go in different locations flying, you know, kites. I mean, winds are pretty much the same anywhere in the world, but yeah. uh, uh, definitely uh, uh, under the different lights and different uh, sky, the kites look slightly different. Well, I was wondering because I've seen them really just beautiful documentation of them at beaches, but. You know, Knoxville isn't particularly close to a sandy beach. Is that correct? I mean, unless there's like a, I don't know, like a great riverbed there that I don't know about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is a, in fact, uh, there, is, there is a, there's not a beach, but there, uh, it's called a Cherokee farm. It's a part of a university agricultural uh, farm. And then that's a nice place to fly kites. It's a very flat, grassy field. Yeah, and it's uh, it's a good place to. I gotta watch out for the dog poop, but otherwise, <laughs> it's a nice place to fly kites. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's a, you're right. It, it is a far away from beach. And then then the the one of my favorite place uh, is uh, Outer Banks, in North Carolina, mm-hmm. which is a great uh, wind, uh, uninterrupted wind, and then predictable wind. Great place to uh, fly kites, and then. Uh, and most recently, I was in northern Wyoming in the Big Horn Mountain. And uh, uh, last uh, uh, December, I was in Sicily in Italy, mm-hmm. a place called the uh, Lastagno, which is a very west end of uh, Sicily. That They make uh, salt, I guess. And then um, and they have great wind, too. So I, mean, I kind of you know, go into a place like that just to fly in the kite. <laughs> and then and it was a landscape, you know. And I tried to just kind of my own satisfaction of that, those flights. Yeah. Uh, travel a different world and then you know uh, flying there it's a sort of kind of my personal project in a way so good thing about flying kite like even i had a uh, it's a therapeutic it, it's a it's a force me to look up the sky and then and then when i look up the sky and then the the little tiny problem becomes sort of insignificant mm-hmm. and also in other world those uh, healthy mental uh activity i think yeah, I didn't even think about that aspect of it, but like, of course, yeah. like that makes so much sense because you're out in nature and in a big open space and you've got an activity to keep you occupied, but it's not a stressful activity. It's, yeah, that's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah it is. It is. A, it is nice. It's a nice activity. And, uh, and then sometimes when I fly eight kite at once, it's a, that's a lot of work. Right. I've been running constantly. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a cardio workout. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Well, what are you, like, before we, we run out of time, I do want to circle back to what you talked about just at the very beginning and landed on a little bit of a teaser about the current project where you're using lots of little plates, but you're thinking about combining them. What um, What's yeah. on the horizon there? Well, um, I mean, I've kind of tried to utilize this like, quarantine time, just being away from the uh, my studio. Well, I guess I now I'm kind of trying to establish a small studio, so the work's got to be a lot smaller. So uh, I will have this Intaglio prints and a m- b- bunch of them printed on the Gumpy paper. 
and then I will make the uh, kites, but it's going to be a lot smaller kites mm. in a way, I guess. And then uh, kites like sculpture, basically the the paper with bamboo, basically that's where it is. And then and then uh, having a bunch of I'm talking about maybe hundred of them, so they will interact together and become a sort of uh, insulation piece. That's mm. kind of my vision right now. Sort of sort of like a yes, yeah, school of fish. That's yeah. kind of uh, there's a. There's a word for the mermulation. That's it. That's okay. a fancy word. Mermulation. Right <laughs> yeah. Mermulation. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Um, I guess in that case, just to kind of close up, would you let people know where they can find you and see your kites and kind of stay up to date as things progress, as we're all, you know, keeping in touch digitally with each other more than ever before? I mean, pretty much I've been utilizing my website as well as Instagram. Instagram is a lot more direct and, and swift. So I think that's what I'd like you to take a look at. You can look uh, under my name uh, and Instagram. I think that's probably the place to find me. And that's just your uh, first name, Koichi, and then underscore Yamamoto. Is that correct? Koichi Yamamoto. Yeah, Koichi Yamamoto. K-O-I-C-H-I-Y-A-M-O-I-D-O. And uh, I think you, it's easy to find me that way. And um, yeah, I've, I've been making a lot of videos and then uploading in the Vimeo too. So that's, I'm going to uh, inter- connect that together with my website. So all the information will be centralized. Well, I can definitely yeah. put um, links to everything in the show notes to this episode. Cool. And thank you so much for chatting. This has been absolutely delightful. Thank you, Rebecca. Yeah, this yeah, this is a, uh, it was a fun, uh, especially uh, while I'm talking to you, uh, sun setting, now it become a dark. Aww. So it was an interesting transition from the sunset to the night, to the evening. So yeah. now I, I see this purple skies and then, yeah, evening start. Well, I'm glad that we could, yeah, chat the evening away and the early morning here. And um, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I'll be in touch. Yeah, good luck with editing. I, I, uh, thank you very much for giving the opportunity to talk about my artwork. And then, and I appreciate your passion for this, uh, the love for the craft. And then you're focusing on it. And then we need more people like you. I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Let's um, let's definitely stay in touch, and hopefully we can yes. connect uh, in person in SGCI. You know, next year, if that's probably what it's, where it's looking like it's yeah. going to. So we'll we'll survive. We we'll will survive this thing. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Carlos Barbarina. We talk about his childhood during the revolution in Nicaragua selling drawings to tourists on the streets in Costa Rica, finding his voice in political printmaking, and so much more. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. (laughs) 